Hello and welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. I'm Chris Somerville and I work for Readings Online. Uh, today I'm speaking with Sean O'Byrne about his new book, a book of short stories, and it's published by Black Ink. It's called A Couple of Things Before the End. Thank you, Sean, for holding it up because I forgot the title. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just coming out. This is a bonus episode. It's part of uh, Reading's March Madness bracket. I don't think that's true. But <laughs> um, as well as working for Reading's, I'm also the author of a book of short stories, which came out quite a long time ago, uh, called We Are Not the Same Anymore. It came out in 2013, which I think is why we've been lumped together. Mm. As short story boys. Yeah, that's, short. that's what everyone that's the wrong said. way to say that. That's what everyone called it. Um, I was just going to ask you just to start off with, yeah. uh, you work in a bookstore. Yes. And you see how badly short story collections seem to go <laughs> over with the general public. Right. Um, I wanted to know how come you decided to go for one? I have never exactly understood, even though... As you say, I've been working in a bookshop for a long time. I've never had the low opinion of short stories or their fate. Uh, I remember people did say to me years ago when I was first starting to make the stories, you really should be writing a novel um, and other sort of pretty strongly prejudicial things against the short story. I, for some reason, I never it never bothered me. I never really attached to that story. Um, I, I watched, say, for example, something like The Boat. Namley's The Boat, just yeah. become a book that people talked about over and over. It's pretty much one of the best books that came out in the last 20 years. Plenty of novels seem to come out and disappear abruptly. Uh, so I just never was able to get a much of a sense that there was something so difficult or bad about the short story. And the more that I, the more I um, tried to pay attention to the form and looked back at the history of it, I just liked it more and more, all the way from Catherine Mansfield through to D.H. Lawrence, or back to Chekhov, to, to Catherine Mar Mansfield, to D.H. Lawrence, then then through to people who really did, I don't know, impress me or help me, um, in particular, Donald Barthelemy. When I right. found his stories, people might not know him. He was a, he's an American writer. He wrote short stories that were that collapsed what you would think of as a literary short story into something that was also sometimes like a piece of sketch comedy or like a dream or like just a lump of popular culture. And that gave me the message that the short story was, could be really rather good at dealing with this big, strange problem, not problem, problem that we've got, which is the loss of high culture. The short story is a, uh, faster, scrappier form, and there's something that it can do, I think, taking Bartholomew's lead in not just staying up in the more protected literary traditional form. A short story was able to move around a little bit more and, again, register this strange change or big change that has taken place, which is the ascendancy of popular culture, the sheer amount of popular culture we've got now, the, just the mass of it. And a short story, it seemed to me, was able to drop some of that harder literariness and get down and mix around with all the ways we really do uh, try and entertain ourselves now or talk to ourselves. There's a Barthelemy story called How I Write My Songs that was particularly helpful to do with this. Hmm. It's the reproduction of some songwriter who's producing country and western songs. 
And that I remember reading that story and just having and going through a kind of recognition of, all right, you're reproducing an amount of popular culture talk about a popular culture product, and thinking, I don't know, not exactly explicitly, but that's what I should try and do because I didn't grow up in a strongly literary place. I didn't grow up amongst, I don't know, high culture. I grew up with, and I think a lot of people do now, with this strange mix of wanting some high culture, wanting literature, but really every day surrounded by sort of pressing or oppressive amounts of popular culture. Right. Um, So have you read his novels as well? No, I've never read Snow White. Right. Um, well, I think he did The Dead Father as well. Right, right, right. Um, but I guess he was mostly known for short stories. Yeah. Um, so were you working on this for quite a while? Yes, yes, yeah. Some of the stories in the book would have existed in some form or another back in maybe 2010, 2011. Right. Um, I did, it, did take, it did take me a long time to do that thing that the more I did it, the more I read writers saying – you have to write out so much bad writing. You, you, you can you, sometimes you're so happy to be making the attempt, um, and then once you're actually able to get yourself in your room and and produce some writing, uh, then you go through this other sort of cycle of frustration and disappointment, which is understanding that what you're making isn't good enough, and to bear with the sheer amount of it that's not going to be good enough. So, did you write many that got cut? I wrote sort of what would just be bad earlier versions, like most of these stories, almost all of them had much larger earlier versions that were just uh, sort of tonally, or this is not to go too far, sort of spiritually wrong. They were, the, th- the problem that I had a lot was trying to, trying to decide about the people in the stories too fast, trying, right. to, trying to know too much about them too soon. So one of the things that was really nice and did take a long time, not to be too much about this, but it did take years to sort of learn this lesson, and it was the lesson to learn, which is the difference between something like a sketch comedy sensibility where you point at someone you don't like and you show them to be ridiculous or insufficient in some way. And this thing that I think fiction demands of you, which is to do that, to, to, to sort of report your first amount of separation or distance from somebody, but then also have to slowly consider the way in which you're more like them than you wanted to admit at first or that you love or need them in ways that you don't want to admit right away. I grew up, I mean, I think a lot of writers, I think a lot of I don't know, different people, a lot. this happens to lots and lots of people, you grow up with people that aren't, you experience in some important ways not like you and you feel alienated from them or separate from them. And that's the sort of, that gets you started. You think, well, why... And then you have your amount of problem. You've got your problem to work out, which is, all right, here am I. They tell me to do this over and over. Watch test cricket, be a good boy, get out in the sunshine. You don't, mm. I don't want to do this. I'm drawn towards books. That's the starting problem. But then later to bend myself back and start to make stories that reproduce some of the talk and the feeling of the people I grew up with um, and not just mock them. Um, understand the ways in which, again, I'm like them in ways I don't want to admit. And then I suppose the, the fiction job that comes, that's always there in the end, which is, I don't know, finding out the ways in which we're all 
lost in some way that we're all just trying to assemble ourselves and keep it running right. in the face of all the things that frighten us. Right. Because um, I would say the strength of the book is that you do drop into voice quite quickly and you kind of really get a sense of the character right at the beginning. Because wow. a lot of the short stories in the collection are quite short too. Yes, yes, yes. As well. Yeah. Um, so do you, when you were writing them, I guess, were you like setting out, I have a character, this is the person I'm going to write? Or was it more, this is an idea I want to get across? How can I, who can I use to get uh, this across? I think that's interesting. Hard to remember going back. I think a bit, I would, my first answer to that is a bit of both. So sometimes I would make, start making the person on the page and not really have a sense of the bigger thing I wanted to say. But sometimes it was the other way around where I would have more of a, almost an essay-like idea, like a kind of a proposition that I wanted to test or an argument I wanted to make. But then, you know, it, it would be always a mix of the two sooner or later. That's once good. I find that really satisfying about fiction. One of the things that draws me to fiction, which is it's like making an argument, but because you're also impersonating a person, you never get to run an argument too cleanly. Mm. Like their behavior is always interfering with whatever ideas you first had. Right. I like that. I, I'm starting to understand that that's – I've been recently trying to think about writing nonfiction, and one thing I immediately really miss is that human ambiguity, that sense of disorder or incompetence that you can report in a, in, 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 when you write a fiction. Whereas if you transfer into a nonfiction, not all nonfiction does this, but a lot of nonfiction does, you sort of smooth away all of that contradiction, ambiguity, and incompetence, and you start to present your argument and you sort of connect its parts together. Right. Um, the thing I really loved in making these stories was, yeah, sometimes I would be making hopefully, you know, half hidden or not that hidden, some argument about Australia or Australian culture, something I wanted to you know, speak out against. Right. But again, once you get a hopefully operating real enough person there, they'll start to say things that you wouldn't have thought that they'll say right away. It really does happen. And then you have you start to have to have a different um, relationship to them and the whole thing can't become an argument exactly anymore. It just becomes an amount. You know that old line they say, George Saunders quotes this from Chekhov, that the point of fiction is not to provide an answer to the problem, it's just to present the problem. Right. There's something that that would be more or less a shorter way to say it. So that you've presented, <laughs> so you've just more presented just problems rather than trying to fix them. Basically, yeah, we show the field. You show. You try and show what mostly is. Um, you know, like I could take a cousin or a, a male relative, and I could start with an argument about what I think has happened to them and the ways I dislike how they reassure themselves or how they demand too much orthodoxy from themselves or the others around them. Mm. But then the more I make them, the more I might find there's a story in the book called A, um, a Night with the Fellas, which was me starting with the kind of um, talk that someone would give at like a 21st or a Bucks night um, or a, um, a Brownlow medal speech. And one of the things that happened as I worked on that story more and more was not that, that I couldn't just make this bloke this sort of collection of things I disliked about what regular or, or, or more usual Australian blokes say and do, that it did start to mix with my own memories and my own sense of, I don't know, how you protect yourself, how hard it is to confess when you're afraid. Right. And at that point, I couldn't just dis dislike the guy. Right. He started yeah. to become me and me him. Because I guess you don't want to be cartoonish. Or no, like no, and that does strike me again as the difference between the sketch comedy and fiction 
where sketch comedy you can just set somebody up and throw things at them right. and then get off. And it's good. It's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, for fiction, there's something about that. Um, Harold Pinter said this. I found this really useful. Like, like late, I came across this quote from Harold Pinter saying he wrote an early play, like pretty soon after the birthday party, and he just said, well, I wanted to demonstrate that I disliked these people, right. you know, that I held them in contempt. And he, he says it better than this, but he says something like, and you find that it just can't live. It just can't live for a certain amount of time. After a while, you get too tired of being told that. You want some other information as a right. reader or a spectator. And he said um, that he just learned not to do that. He learned to get this better, this better, more, I don't know, broader ambiguity across. Yeah. Look for that. Right. Um, so I think we were going to have you read um, from one of the stories now. Uh, this is from the story Scout, uh, which is about a bloke who was in Scouts, in the scouting movement in the 70s, and he's trying to figure out what it was, you know, what it, what, it, what it all meant, what it was and wasn't. All right. So from Scout. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm happy to talk about it. I think it's good you're trying to find blokes that were in it. You know, what did I learn? What did I learn? Oh, let me think. Probably nothing. <laughs> nah, I'm only kidding. Quite a few knots, that's for sure. Uh, now, nah, to be fair, I think just being outside, yeah. You know? I take my own kids camping now, and I don't think I'd do that unless I had that experience in the Scouts. We didn't camp as a family. My mum wouldn't go. She's not going to stay in some tent. Sometimes we'd go to a caravan park, but Dad, well, I don't know what he wanted, probably to stay at home. But, uh, yeah, on, on weekends now, if I have the kids, uh, we, we go up to Tara or the Kresge National Park. Yeah, we camp there. So, yeah. If it wasn't for the scouts, I never would have got to swim in a freshwater creek, you know, fry stuff up at night, roast potatoes in the fire, yeah, and yeah, shoot a lot of stuff. Yeah, we did uh, shoot a lot of guns, which was unusual, uh, even in those days, for a trip to go out shooting as much as we did. Yeah, I mean, if, if, we, if we saw other troops at something like the Queen's Challenge or something, they never did anything with guns. But uh, I think our troop was a bit more shooty or there was a little bit of a gun culture there because our leader, Sarge, was a cop and uh, Noddy, the other leader, he was a cop too. Yeah. I mean, looking back, you wouldn't let any of it happen now. On camp, they used to give us a couple of 22s and let us go for a walk. <laughs> Me and this other kid, Dean McLennan, we used to shoot um, birds or uh, yeah. one time up on this farm, we shot these ceramic things. These sort of uh, weird sort of ceramic bulb things that were left up the top of a lot of these old electricity poles. We were, uh, yeah, we were freaking lucky we didn't shoot each other. Yeah, I don't know. It was the seventies. It was a different time. Yeah, you know? I mean, who gives a couple of fourteen-year-old guns and says, "Boys, go for a walk." Yeah, you know? I, I, I do. I do give them credit though. Like at least we were there. Noddy had six kids for fuck's sake. You know. I went to his house once to help pick up some stuff. He's got all this scout stuff, camping gear, and there's kids everywhere, and he had this big aviary out the back, all this netting, and he kept chooks loose in the back garden. You know, the whole joint was just full of kids, chooks, tents, crap, more chooks, fucking I don't know. People did whatever they wanted back then. I mean, I don't know. People were poorer, but they had more stuff in a weird way. Not his joint was huge. I mean, dusty, <laughs> yeah, but huge. 
I reckon he was quite mad, Noddy, the big mad bastard. He had all that going, so many kids already. And he's a cop, which would be a pretty full, stressful day sometimes. And he's doing all this extra stuff, taking a bunch of kids camping who are not even his. And Sarge too, you know. Sarge was in the CID. Yeah, I remember my mother being very impressed with that. He was a detective. But, you know, there he was, teaching a pack of dingling kids how to build a fire. Yeah. He was no fucking fool too. We were scared of Sarge. He had this thing on camp where he would get very shitty if a kid had his um hands in his pockets. Which I fucking drove him nuts. Like when we had jobs to do, like putting up the tents, but some kid would just be thinking about, you know, having a Mars bar or something, you know, and standing there with his hands in his pockets. And Sarge, Sarge would fucking bellow at you, you know. You'd fucking shit yourself. Dreamy little idiot. And suddenly Sarge is there going, what are you doing standing around with your hands in your pockets? You know, go ape shit. He'd really open it right out. I do not want to see one boy standing around this camp with his hands in his pockets. Fucking hell. You fucking pick up anything. Pick up the same peg you just put down. Pick up a leaf just to make it look like you were doing something. Fucking hell. You could imagine him yelling at his wife because he found her in the kitchen with her hands in her fucking pockets. Still, he uh, he did let us have shotguns. Yeah, we shot shotguns, not just twenty twos. And a shotgun, that's a big deal for a kid. That's a big gun. They they, they hurt your shoulder. And three oh threes, we shot three oh threes. Yeah, they had a big uh, oh like a, a cartridge. Nah, uh, like a shell, like a big brass shell. I still have some of them somewhere. Yeah, I've got my little uh, scout shirt somewhere. Jesus, with that little badges on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the badges, right? Uh, I'm trying to remember the badges were a big deal. That was most of it. Like when we weren't camping, you learned to do these things, uh, like tie a knot, and you got the badges. We did the reef knot, uh, the bow line. I could do the bow line. And we went to this thing called the Queen's Challenge. Uh, yeah, you did knots on that. That was a day out in some field somewhere, and you had to uh, you had to do things like build, nah, sort of tie or or lash all these poles together, like wooden poles in a uh, triangle, big triangle, and you made a thing like uh, not a boat. Oh, fuck, I can't even describe it. We made a a pyramid out of wood. You lashed the poles together, doing all your knots, and you made a sort of three dimensional triangle. And it was for survival, right? Yeah. You made two of them, uh, pyramids, and you like the patrol. You all got up on one, and then you positioned the other one in front, and then you all climbed over to the other one onto that, and it was, it was for survival. Yeah. Now, if you want to ask me in what emergency circumstance you would immediately build two large wooden pyramids, I don't know. I think we were uh, crossing a river, you know, or uh, or snakes, you know, snake infestation. You've got to get up higher, yeah, need a pyramid. Yeah. So I suppose the snakes would get up there too pretty fast, eh? They'd be all over it, be like a fucking play centre for those boys. Yeah, they would love a wooden pyramid. So uh, maybe just the river. Yeah, get across the river. Yeah. It is strange to think it was like that stuff they make people do now on TV, uh, like on those shows where people have to do stuff on an island. Survivor. 
This was like Survivor, except there were no celebrities and nobody won anything. But we just did it, uh, and then we had lunch. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to the e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The music for this podcast has been recorded by Tom Hoskins, and this episode has been produced by Grant Overend. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, and the sovereignty was never ceded.